Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. My special guest is Brent Milligan. Brent is a huge producer and musician and all-around great guy. He has worked with so many amazing artists. Currently, he works with Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's uh, Stephen Curtis's producer. He's worked with the amazing rock band Colony House, which they're awesome. Uh, he's worked with Torn Wells, New Song, Brandon Heath, DC Talk, David Crowder. He's even worked with the Backstreet Boys. I mean, he crosses all genres and is just an amazing, he's one of my favorite producers. And so I finally got a chance to sit down and meet with him in person. And I really look forward to you getting to listen to our conversation today as we talk about producing and playing out on the road and A&R and a few of those different types of things in the music industry. So get a pad and pen and get ready to take some great notes. All right. Well, I'm here with Mr. Brent Milligan. Thank you so much for being here on an early, early uh, morning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're both sitting here yawning because it's just early for musicians, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> How are you today? Good. Good. Thank you so much for coming on and taking time. Um, let me come over to your studio, which is super cool, and just hang out and talk with you a bit and get to know you better and share your story of how you've gotten into the music industry over the years. You've done a lot over the years. Um, so just kind of starting out for our listeners, what got you into music to begin with? I'm not really sure. Uh, music kind of got me into music, really. I, um, I mean, some of my earliest memories are having um, a little turntable, a little record player next to my bed. And I had maybe, I don't know, six records or something. And I just never stopped listening to them. I was just fascinated by them and incessantly listening to them. And my parents were like, wow, this kid's he really likes music. He really likes these records. Mm-hmm. Um, I was probably four, three or four. Um, and then we would go have dinner at somebody's house. And if they had a piano, I didn't want to leave the piano. I didn't want to, I would eat, but while the adults were sitting around talking, I would be at the piano kind of plinking out, um, a melody of a song that I'd heard or something like that. And, so my parents were just kind of like, what is it with this kid? Mm-hmm. So then I wanted a cello in fifth grade. They were starting a little string program. So my parents got me a little student cello, and I was just playing it a lot. 
all the time. Um, even after I quit, after about six months, I quit the strings thing, but I always was playing in my room and playing along with records. I'd be playing a record like, uh, you know, at that point, maybe Journey or something like mm -hmm. that. And I'm playing cello along with it, trying to figure out what's going on, melodies and things like that. So I did that kind of all through junior high, um, was just in my room playing uh, cello. And then in ninth grade, some friends and I were, uh, some new friends and I were kind of getting together and, and we all realized, hey, we've got four more years of this. So um, we need to figure out some kind of way to make money, uh, or basically there were three objectives make money, get girls, and, um, and hopefully have fun yeah. in the process of doing both. And somebody said, well, we should start a band. And, you know, we thought, well, that's a genius idea. Mm -hmm. Get girls, make money, have fun doing it. That looks like the, the golden ticket. <laughs> so we start this band and we kind of divvy up instruments and I ended up with the bass because I had had that cello. Mm -hmm. And so Christmas of my freshman year, I asked for a bass guitar for Christmas and uh, they got me this little cheap kind of pawn shop bass guitar for $150 or something. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was the coolest thing and I'd pretty much never put it down. Um, and maybe about six or eight months later, I had saved up a little bit of money and there was a PVT-40 for sale in a pawn shop that I had seen. So I, I think I traded in that first bass I had for the the first long scale real bass that I'd ever had, the PVT 40. Yep. And from there on, I, I just never put it down. That's cool. Uh, I want to back up real quick. So learning the cello, like what drew you to the cello as, as a kid of all I, the instruments in the world? What makes you pick a cello as well, a young child? I, did, I definitely didn't want to play violin. Okay. I didn't know what a viola was. And really what I was asking for, what I thought I was asking for was an upright bass. Okay. Because I had only seen pictures. Right. And this, this cello thing looked really big and it looked like it might be the upright bass. But I didn't know the, I didn't know the what difference. all those were yeah. called. So I thought I was asking for an upright bass. And when they brought the cello home, I was like, that's really small. Gotcha. Um, okay. But I thought, okay, I'm not, I guess I'll learn to play this. Yeah. And it's served you well <laughs> over the years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, it's it's weird that um, that cello was not on my radar at all when I moved to Nashville. I didn't own one. I, it had been so long since I had picked up a cello. I mean, once I got the bass at age 14, mm -hmm. I was it. really never touched the cello again yeah. until I was probably early 30s. Yeah. That's cool. So after high school, so you got your band. Did, what did you guys do as a band? Like, did, were you playing just locally shows or are you out yeah. touring regionally? Or where did Well, you... we were just in high school. So what we would do is rent out a space. Like uh, one time we rented the, there was like a Jewish community center uh, that, had, that could hold, I guess that room could maybe hold 200 people or something. Mm -hmm. But they rented that hall to us for $100 for the night. So 
we scraped together a hundred bucks, rented that, and then charged at the door and put up flyers everywhere. And uh, we made our money back and then maybe some, but mm. not a ton. But we thought, wow, yeah, you know, hey, we, school, we yeah, made money. Uh, girls saw us on stage. I mean, <laughs> and it it was fun. So we just yeah. we thought we were kings. You know, yeah. it's a fun time in high school. You know, in that that age range of putting your first bands together and getting out and performing. And I remember that very well. Um, and it's exciting, the possibilities of what, you know, what could be, right. you know, and dreaming of what, you know, you, you see your heroes on in concerts and on TV and these different things and performing. And that, that's your dream is to be able to do that as well. Sure. Um, you know, so it's like planting the seeds. And at that point, we would have been aware of, the fact that you too was successful and had formed right around our age mm-hmm. in their teenage years right. and how they had, you know, how they were kind of moving towards this huge iconic career. And we were pretty inspired by that. Yeah, of course. So where did you go to after high school musically? Did you go into college for music or what got you to Nashville for sort of the long Long way trip to yeah. Nashville. <laughs> um, well, at that point, I never even considered music a career, a career choice possibility. After high school, I went to LSU. I had a um, an offer, a scholarship offer from Loyola in New Orleans, but I would have had to major in jazz. And I, for some reason, I realized I didn't want to major in jazz. There was a really good jazz program at our high school that I became involved in, and it was a lot of fun, and I loved jazz, but I was a bad reader, and I just, I don't know, I didn't see the trajectory of playing jazz as a as a living, as probably being something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So it was either play, play jazz for a living or teach jazz for a living. I guess if I had a, if I had thought of going to music school and major in jazz, and I I just wasn't super drawn to either of those options for myself, so I went to LSU and majored in marketing, and played in one of the jazz bands in the music school, and also took lessons for from the jazz professor there who happened to be a bass player and was. Uh, a great guy and very influential for me just uh, as a kind of as a guy and as a as a bass player I learned a ton from him about mm-hmm. upright about music theory but he was also really kind of he shared a lot just from from life and stuff and sure. it was really cool his name was Bill Grimes okay and um, great guy his son's uh, one of his sons is a, a really successful drummer and just great family. So I was really, you know, those people in your life around that stage are pretty important. Oh, yeah. And I feel, I feel really lucky that I had him uh, and a couple others. The worship guy at the church that I went through at the time, Phil Rogers, very influential. Yeah. Again, as, as a musician and also as a man and somebody speaking into your life and encouraging you. So I was, I feel really fortunate to have had those people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I majored in marketing 
at this point, I was playing in church. I was playing in that jazz band. I was doing gigs around town, just playing jazz at uh, wedding receptions and things like that. And then I also had a band that I was playing in. And I was also practicing all the time. I, I just never put the bass down. It felt like I had a bass in my hands yeah. uh, for hours every day. So I was still not, I mean, doing this for a living was not on my radar. I just loved to do it. Yeah. I really, I don't think I had really thought through what I wanted to do for a living other than maybe I wanted to work for IBM or something because that's what my dad did. Okay. And then I think maybe I made the switch. I had a friend in Baton Rouge who was friends with two guys who went to Belmont. Uh, Will Denton and Charles Garrett. Yeah, I know Will. And um, they were, they went to Belmont and they lived together and they were starting to kind of make inroads. And so that kind of got me thinking, hey, I know these guys and they're starting to kind of do this. They're starting to make a living or starting to play for people that I've heard of and right. stuff. So I thought, well, gosh, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking they're really good, but if they can do it, maybe I can do it too. Yeah. Maybe I ought to try this. So I started thinking maybe I wanted to move to Nashville for about four or five years and just kind of give it a shot and see what happened. So you finally get to town and... The way I got to town was... I had a mutual friend who knew Charlie Peacock, okay. the producer, yep. artist, who at that time was my favorite artist. I felt like the stuff he was doing as an artist was the most outside the CCM box mm -hmm. of anything I'd heard. Uh, lyrically, musically, everything. He was just coming from a different place. And I had met him through a mutual friend a few months before this. So I'm about two weeks from moving to Nashville and I get this, this voicemail that says, Hey, this is Charlie Peacock. Um, I know we met for a second, but, uh, I'm going to play this festival and I can't find a bass player. And I felt like I was supposed to call you. Wow. Did he know you played bass because of your mutual friend? Like, I think he... so. Okay. I think so. Yeah. All right. Um, oh yeah, he did because I had auditioned at this point. I had auditioned for Margaret Becker's band. Okay. And apparently, according to, I think she told me this story, but it was a long time ago. And I, I don't know if I'll get the details right. So Margaret, forgive me if you hear this and I don't <laughs> have the details right. But I think she told me that she went back to Charlie after the auditions and said, hey, I met this kid from Louisiana who auditioned for me. And I think he'd be really good for you. Hmm. So she put in a word with Charlie, which, um, That's was cool. Yeah. So sweet. That's so nice. kind, yeah. so generous. And she's in my pantheon of heroes forever for that. Sure. Not that I didn't already just think the world of her before that, but yeah, uh, I did. And then she did that. So yeah, pantheon. So I get this call from Charlie that apparently has come from kind of meeting him slash probably a big part, Margaret putting in the word that she did. So, of course, I call him back as soon as I can and say, yeah, of course, I'd love to play that. Because I had played along with every one of his records, I don't know how many times, probably 
hundreds. Yeah. I had played bass along with it and I had listened to it in the car. I mean, I knew. Yeah. Back, knew it backwards and I forwards. I knew them backwards and forwards. Sure. I knew every little Tommy Sims nuance on those records. So I drove all night to Nashville and met Charlie at his studio. We played through a few songs. I think he wanted to spend at least a few more minutes around me and make sure I wasn't crazy or axe murderer or something. (laughs) So we did that and I got, gosh, I got in the car with him. We drove to the airport. We picked up somebody else on the way and flew to Minneapolis and went and played the Sunshine Fest in uh, Minnesota. Uh, Yeah, where is that? Minnesota. And that was my first real gig your introduction is playing playing with your childhood hero yeah playing with the guy that had been my just the pinnacle in my mind for a few years and i actually thought to myself i'm going to move to nashville for about four or five years if i get to work with charlie peacock or brown banister who was you know the other big producer that i looked up to uh, if I get to work with either one of those guys in the first four or five years, I will have considered myself to have made it. And <laughs> and at that point, I can decide, hey, move home. You did it. You worked with Charlie or Brown. You That's, you know, yeah. mission accomplished. Yeah. Or if things are kind of working out, I guess you can stay if you yeah. want to. Yeah, I'd say they worked out. <laughs> it's First yeah, gig, man. Funny, yeah. And it was, I, I felt like it was... The message I received from that being my litmus test and Charlie calling me kind of first thing, the message I received was kind of God saying, is that all you want? Mm. Like, I, I can do that. Sure. Because I had prayed about those things. Mm-hmm. And I had asked God, you know, hey, I, I'd really love to work with either of those two guys. And we'll, have, we'll consider that kind of a threshold of success an early threshold of success yeah so i had kind of asked god to open doors and i felt like he kind of kicked that door open and that was a message to me that sort of he was in this with me Mm -hmm. yeah that's fantastic it's encouraging too i think people that are listening to this need to know that you know that whether it be what you consider your dreams coming true you know of what you're your goals and aspirations might be, or if it's just a stepping stone for other things that you hope may happen down the road, it's all possible. You know, nothing is beyond the realm of possibility. It's not, you know, it's really not. You think of whoever's listening, whatever your, your dream artist to play with or for or work with or whatever. Yeah. You know, is that, is that ever really going to happen? Yeah, it can happen. It can happen. And it doesn't, it doesn't always happen, you know, no. to be realistic about it. You know, no, some people, it, it, it happens a lot easier for than others. Yeah. But it's always possible, you know, and that's a it's great encouragement possible. for that. I don't know how many people that I've been around at this point who were sitting around working odd jobs, discouraged, thinking about quitting, probably sold some gear, and then one phone call mm-hmm. changed it. It's the one phone call. Hey, can you come play for somebody huge? Yep. Or um, I heard this work you did. Can you produce this? Right. Um, or uh, a songwriter friend who had moved away. He'd written a bunch of songs. He'd moved away. And then 
all of a sudden one of his songs that he had written got picked up and then it was another and then it was another and then it just started this avalanche of people wanting to hear what has this guy written and his songs started getting cut he moves back to town he starts co-writing with people and he just he's written untold huge hits since then but had quit basically yep had moved away and quit so um there's no shame about calling it quits at the right time and and things like that. But I have really been surprised to see how many times somebody in that position, one phone call just turns the whole thing around. Sure. Yeah. And that's encouraging to know that I think for, for people listening, that's really necessary to know, you know, that things can change quickly and very quickly, you know, life, that's the way life works, you know, so keep, keep at it, keep going. Don't be discouraged. Um, and when life does get discouraging, stay the course, you know, if that's something that you're truly wanting to pursue, those things can come true. So yeah, they can. How long did you work for Charlie? Um, well, I went and played that, that show with Charlie and then he said, Hey, do you, we had talked on that trip and I told him that I wrote songs. And so he said, can you come over and play me some of your songs? Which, of course, I wanted to do, but was also terrified <laughs> to do because I looked at him as, well, this guy's a real songwriter and a real producer. And my stuff sounds very amateur and these songs can't be very good. And so, uh, so I go over and I play him these songs and he says, I hear something in these. Maybe what he heard was me trying to be him. I'm not sure being so influenced by him at that stage. But he said, I hear something in these and I kind of want to, I kind of want to take you under my wing and teach you. Um, And we'll work on songwriting and we'll also work on production. And then I will use you as a bass player when it's appropriate. Hmm. Um, So, at that stage, I think there were going to be records that he needed to call in the big guns, uh, but maybe for a song here and there or a record that he really had latitude on, maybe he could use the new guy mm-hmm. who was still learning the ropes. Yeah. So he was really faithful to do that and used me on a number of records. And what it did, and I think this was... I think his intention was twofold. It was the intention that he communicated to me was that I would learn from having played on records. I would learn from him. What's, how do you put together a bass part? What works on records? You would learn that. And then also my name would start going out on records. And in those days, and maybe it's still the case, once your name started going out in credits, there were physical CDs going out then. So everybody read credits. Exactly. And so once your name started getting in the credits, you kind of got this implicit stamp of approval yep. and other people would start calling you. Yeah. So he was trying to help me break in to that by using me and, um, and kind of giving me, since it says produced by Charlie Peacock and I played on it and maybe played on multiple records, then maybe people start going, who's this guy who keeps playing on Charlie Peacock records? I need to know him. Yep. And I think he was, he was trying to help me break in by doing that and, sure. and was so generous 
you know, and obviously I mentioned the Pantheon, Margaret Becker, uh, Charlie's definitely in the Pantheon. Yeah, of course. Big time. Uh, and again, just in those formative years, a guy that, that was helping me form my ideas about what it meant to be a professional musician and also very much what it means to be a man and a believer as a professional musician yeah. and gave me uh, so many thoughts about that. Okay. So can, can you expand on that just a little bit? Like what are some of the, the highlights of things that he taught you as, as a musician and as a producer? Cause that's how you kind of got into production was learning from him. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So for, cause somebody's listening, that's wanting to be a producer full time. Yeah. You know, or maybe a, a full-time musician or whatever. Like what are some of those things that he was able to teach you to, yeah. that you can expand on? Um, well, he let me, he let me sit on his couch. It was kind of an open invitation to sit on his couch and say nothing and be invisible. Just listen. Just listen and watch, which of course I was going to do at every opportunity. Just watch Charlie Peacock produce, sign me up. Yeah. So I sat on that couch as much as I could. And then he also gave me a key to his studio and said, you can come in here and use it when I'm not using it. So I would go in and, and kind of learn. And then uh, he had an engineer named Craig Hansen, who was a great engineer and just the best guy. And I would watch him and ask questions and he would kind of teach me about the engineering side of it because mm -hmm. I needed to learn that. I knew nothing right. about that and which microphones did what and how to use them, how to use mic preamps. So I was kind of trying to be a sponge in those days. But some of the, some of the things Charlie said to me, I remember once playing on a pop record and I knew that Charlie loved jazz as I did. So we were going kind of into the second chorus and I'm playing this verse and I think to myself, I'm going to play this crazy jazz riff going into the second chorus. And since he loves jazz, he's going to think that's really cool and, and all that. So I play this jazz riff and go into the second chorus, play a few bars of the second chorus. And he stops the tape because we were on tape, not Pro Tools. And uh, he kind of sits there for a second. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a pop song. And he hits rewind. And he says, I'll get you in two bars before the chorus. And so the message I got was, hey, don't mix your pop and your jazz. Mm -hmm. This is a pop song. Don't try to, don't try to get cross, you know, too much cross-pollination. Right. Because I think that's what I was doing. So, man, great lesson. Great lesson. And then we talked some more about that. And he told me about how it could be a stigma in Nashville to be considered a jazz player. Because... There were just certain attributes that went along with that that were not uh, valued in the kind of pop world that I was trying to get into. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so that was great. He taught me a lot about it being okay to be a family man and be a musician. It was okay to be a family man. It was okay to be faithful to your wife faithful to a church, not involved in crazy living, getting drunk, doing yeah. drugs. I mean, all the stereotypes that we associate with musicians. I wondered about that stuff. And he talked about that stuff 
very intentionally with me and said, you don't have to do all that. It is possible to be a successful creative person and also a successful person in family life. Right. And uh, they can coexist. And so I was seeing that in him. And then he was also talking about it. And it did really kind of inform my thinking a lot about those things. I call it kind of a gift that, that he was giving me that I didn't even know he was giving me. Uh, because the importance of it was a little bit lost on me in the moment. But you were you married at married at the time? I was I was married at the time. Okay. I was actually married when I moved to Nashville. Okay. Um, Sarah and I met in high school, and dated in high school, and then went to different colleges and stayed together and wrote a lot of letters mm-hmm. uh, because there was no email then, <laughs> and so we wrote a lot of letters, and then we married, and I still had some college left. I finished up my college. We moved here together. Gotcha. So he was basically saying, you can still be married to Sarah a long time from now. Y'all can have kids, you can have a family life, and you can have a successful music career. And for a guy that I looked up to so much to say that and kind of give me permission and have charted that course before me um, was was probably life-changing. That's great advice for anyone in any, any part of life, not just as a musician, but yeah. especially... For those of us that are in this particular line of work for a living, because like you said, that is the stigma that's put on musicians a lot of times is drinking and drugs and sleeping around and right. whatever, you know, and no, it does not have to be that way. And that's so important because my family, my wife and I, our goal is to outserve each other all the time and whatever we're doing. You know, I think that's an important life lesson just in general. But we have to, especially as as being married musicians, we have to have a spouse that believes in you and trusts you. Yes. You know, especially when you're out on the road. Yes. Um, you know, and so, because if you don't have that trust, you're, you're doomed. Um, it's, it's not, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And you have to have a wife or a husband and have them know that this is what you're called to do. Yeah. And they have to be willing to support you and you're supporting them and what they're doing and that, that we know this going in, that this is what yeah. we're doing and we're going to trust that this is the right thing to do. And if that ever falters or wavers in any way, then I'm out because I'm not going to put, I'm not going to put my music and my career over my family and my marriage. That's just not going to happen, yeah. you know, because as soon as you do, it, it's over, you know, you're in big, you're in big trouble. So. That's great, yeah, great to was, hear that, that he's giving you that information. He was, and yeah. And, and I was, of course, um, you know, my wife and the fact that she was up for the adventure of moving to Nashville and that she was supportive and kind of the message I was getting from her was, you can do this. That was game changer as well. Um, yeah. Huge huge life change to have a, to have a wife that was, uh, kind of geared that way. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that that for a second, just because I think so many people need to know what it's like, especially for a musician who is married and has a family and, but is doing music for a living and you might be out on the road a lot and you're gone a lot. How have you guys worked that out in your marriage to be able to do that successfully? 
And maybe maybe it hasn't always been successful. Oh you, you know, gosh, there's always those. Always you got to work it out and figure those things out to get to a point to where we may be nowadays, to where we wouldn't have been 15 yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah, um, I started touring before we had kids, and Sarah was teaching school. Uh, she's pretty independent, which made a big difference in uh, in me being able to to do a lot of shows in those early days and take whatever work was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, because starting out, I was doing some studio work, but I was doing a lot of road stuff too and enjoying it and trying to build relationships. And she was supportive and uh, it was also hard to be away from her um, as much as I was. I did not enjoy being away from her. Yeah, um, it's tough. It is. It's tough. It's a it's a polarizing kind of feeling because you're getting to go out and play music, which you love, and make money, which you need, and yet you're leaving behind somebody that you love dearly. So I found it very polarizing. Mm-hmm. The things I loved about it, I loved, and the downsides of it were really big too. And big upside, big downside, right at the same time. Yeah. So once you... You were working for Charlie for a while and learning from him, getting amazing uh, advice and life lessons. Mm-hmm. What allowed you to be able to move beyond working with him with other artists? You started producing for people, and then you're yeah. also playing bass for people in yeah. studio and on the road. So you're yeah. doing multiple things. Yeah. Well, let's see. I think the next step in the journey was probably there was a guy named Brent Bourgeois who I'd met through Charlie because he was friends with Charlie and we had met and worked on uh, something in the studio. And one day, you know, this goes back to the, just one call can change everything. Mm-hmm. I'm just sitting around one day and he calls and says, Hey, I just got the job as Michael W. Smith's music director and we're putting together a band. Do you want to play bass? Yes, please. Yeah. Right. So of course is the answer and no audition, no anything. Just, now, was Michael W. Smith ever on your list? Like, that was that ever even a thought to you? Like, you know, Charlie Peacock was, if I get to work with Charlie or Brown Bannister, I've hit it. But yeah. it, was Michael ever a, really a thought to you for that? Um, you Not know, that it matters. I'm just curious. Well, kind of in my dreams. Yeah. Um, it's those beyond the Yeah, that's a that's, that's pretty, yeah, that's kind of beyond yeah. reality a little bit yeah. for me at that point. So... That, yeah, that call was just kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, I'm very into this. Uh, what's next? What do we need to do? Sure. Uh, so we'll come over to Michael's studio, meet him, just wants to sit down for a little while. And, you know, again, make sure you're not crazy or something like right. that. They just, he just wanted to meet. So I met him and we had a month of rehearsals. And then started the I'll Lead You Home tour, uh, which I think was maybe 96, 97, somewhere in there. I can't, I'm terrible at dates. So I started playing for him, which, gosh, I mean, I keep coming back to this, but again, I'm 28 maybe at this point, I think. And what a gift of a guy to look up to and be around. Of course. Um, Just wow um you know I, I keep mentioning the pantheon i mean he's he's definitely in there as a guy who 
always striving to make creative music, make the best music he can make, always striving to be a family man, to, to be in his kids' lives, to be in his wife's life, to, to honor them, and always, you know, his relationship with, with Christ front and center, just, gosh, a gift of a man to have in front of me to look up to in those years. And um, still, even to this day, oh, yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of us sure. who've been around him, somebody who, uh, who we look up to mm -hmm. in so many areas and, yeah. and just want to be like in a lot of ways because he's just a good, good man. How long did you play for, for Michael? I played for him for seven years. Okay. And then not so long after I started playing for him, I had done some song demos and I was writing songs, doing song demos. And this group had cut one of my songs. It was my first song that I got recorded. And they go into their label to make their next record. And the A&R guy asks them, what, what do you want to do for this next record? And they said, well, we like that demo of that song that we recorded. And it was a demo that I had done. And the A&R guy was Eddie DeGarmo. Mm -hmm. And I had played for for his group, DeGarmo and Key, kind of their last tour. I had gone out and played bass for okay. uh, because their manager was a friend of mine. So I was friend. I knew Eddie and Dana, DeGarmo and Key mm -hmm. at that point and um, had played them some demos. And Eddie uh, had said, hey, one of these days, I'm going to find you something to produce. And I said, man, thank you. That's so kind and so when this group said we like that demo he knew that i had done the demo and he said well what if he produces your next record nice and they said well, yeah sure so he was an early champion of mine eddie and and gosh you know another guy yeah. here's another guy family man faithful guy fantastic guy to look up to and somebody that i saw as um, a man that I could look at and look up to and, you know, take guidance from all of that stuff, all of which he did and still does, I think, to countless people who look up to him yeah. and, um, a wonderful guy, amazing guy to look up to. That's wonderful. And so you're getting that opportunity to produce for this band because you got to sit and learn from Charlie Peacock. Yes. You know, and just sit and listen and watch and learn. And then from yeah. his engineer, learning the, the technical aspect of, yeah. of engineering and producing and building. It's coming back to relationships. All of these people yeah. are relationships that you've built over the years. And yes, you know, at and, that point, yeah. At that point that I'm starting to produce that first record, the relationship with Eddie DeGarmo is huge for me. Uh, the relationship with Charlie is huge for me. The relationship with Craig Hansen, the engineer, huge. And then I was also on the road with Michael. And those those relationships with Michael and, and the people in the band mm -hmm. are big. And, and most of the time, at least from the conversation so far, all of the people have been referrals that you're getting to go play for or work with because yeah. someone refers you because you, you've gotten to know someone else and they trust you and they know you at yes. this point. And so outside of auditioning for Margaret Becker, 
but she referred you to to Charlie. Yeah. You know, because she saw something in you that was fit him. Yes. And from that point yeah. on, it's all relationship based. Yeah. You know. Yeah, she started the ball rolling. Exactly. That's so true. It's relationship based. And Charlie pretty much told me that early on. It's very relationship based and he said you also want to start building competencies. So he said, if you establish a competency as a bass player, then people will be more likely to be interested in your production. As opposed to if you just walk up to them and say, I want to produce. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, what else have you done? Well, if you've established competency as a bass player and possibly as a songwriter as well, they're going to take you way more seriously when you say you want to produce records. Mm -hmm. So he got me thinking in terms of that. Establish a beachhead on something, whether it be songwriting or playing sessions, or maybe I've seen engineers who have established competency there move on to producing if that's what they want to do. Um, so he made that idea really concrete for me. Mm -hmm. Establish competency somewhere and then move on from that if that's right. what you want to do. Yeah, that's great. Uh, who are some other artists that you've worked with over the years? I know you worked with Backstreet Boys. Is that right? Well, I played bass. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> like how did, yeah. How my, does that come about? That's not something um, that happens every day. No, it came about because my my brilliant friend Dan Muckala was producing. Okay. And uh, yeah. he had written some songs and was was writing these amazing pop songs and still does. But because he was writing these amazing pop songs, he got the opportunity to, he pitched, I think he pitched the songs and then got the opportunity to produce them as well. Okay. And called me to play bass. That's cool. And um, again, it's, a, it's another relationship, somebody that you another know. Another relationship and, that I'd known. And trust. And... Yeah, for a long time. And then, um, so I played for Michael for seven years. And then again, through relationships, got asked if I wanted to do A&R. Okay. Uh, so at that point, maybe early 2000s, um, I took a job as A&R and got off the road and worked for a label for two and a half years. And then pretty soon after that was when I got a call from Stephen Curtis, who I'd known, I'd, I had subbed for him for years, uh, when he needed a bass player, when he needed somebody to sub for his bass mm -hmm. player, I'd gone in and played for him. So, uh, so we had we had a relationship. We knew each other. So at some point, he called and said, um, "Hey, I heard this record that you produced, and I didn't really realize that you produced it, but I liked it, and it kind of sounds like what I want my next record to sound like." So what would you think about maybe working together on some music? And of course, that was like, <laughs> um, I don't even know how to pinch myself hard enough sure, right oh, now. I know. But I had really been praying, hey, I would, I've been really praying for working with some bigger artists. That's what I had been praying for. Mm -hmm. I'd like to work with some bigger artists, some amazing songwriters, and... So I get that call and I'm just kind of stunned sitting there. Is this really happening? Mm -hmm. uh, because I had known him for years and, you know, I keep coming back to this, but again, just 
wow, there's a guy you can look up to. Oh, yeah. A very creative guy, fantastic songwriter, you know, just completely devoted family man with a great family, um, a man who gets up every day and tries uh, in terms of just faithfulness to his walk with Jesus, faithfulness to his family, faithfulness to his craft, to his art, everything. And I knew that about him at the point that he called me uh, just because we had known each other for years and I was just beside myself with, is this really happening? Yep. And then there's there's also, you know, let's be honest, in that in those moments where you get that call, there's also the other voice going, I don't know, is this, <laughs> if I you know, this, yeah. I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. I don't know if I'm up for this. This is really scary because if I fail at this, this is a high profile fail. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to choose to take this risk because it feels like a risk. So I don't know if I think other people have that voice, you know, other people that I've talked to do deal with that voice. But the way I experience creatives is that usually we're all insecure. Um, and we all have that voice saying, I don't know if I'm good enough. Even when you've been successful. Even when you've been successful. Yep. That was yesterday. Yep. Or that was last week, last month, last year that I played on that record or wrote that song or produced that. But that doesn't necessarily mean I can wake up today and repeat that success. Mm -hmm. um, that was just a voice that I heard a lot. Uh, so fortunately... I chose to say yes. Um, I mean, I was I was really eager to work with Stephen and also really scared. Yeah, and that started uh, making that record started. I, it just I don't know. It started a different era for me. Yeah, because th that record was a super vulnerable. Record. So beauty will rise. Beauty will rise. Yeah, yeah. and he had um, recently had the worst tragedy imaginable mm -hmm. in losing his daughter, and so I think I cried more making that record oh, than sure. I had probably cried. You know, if you'd added up all of my crying up to that point in my life, I probably equal to that yeah. making that record and that was a great honor yeah uh, great great honor to, i think to be involved in that i think that is one of his best albums actually and i know them all what charlie peacock is for you is what stephen curtis is for me mm. you know so i i get that completely and yeah i know that that album is very hard to listen to but it's also one of the best lyrical albums I think he has, you know, Amazing. subject wise and just the, the honesty and the rawness of it. But at the same time, the hope, the that's, hope. that's, that's deep inside yeah. of it, you know, I yeah. love it. It's fantastic. So it's a great job on that. Thank you. Um, that's what struck me about that record. Um, there is of course, great sadness and honesty, vulnerability, and and somehow there's this great hope in it mm -hmm. too. And Stephen has this gift where he can write a song about anything. I mean, he could write a song about a, a shoe box 
and it would have this deep hope in it. Yep. And one of the things that is so striking about him is how uh, he's a natural encourager. And he just kind of rolls out of bed in the morning. And and if you interact with him, somehow you feel encouraged. Mm-hmm. And um, you get hope. Yeah, And he's so good at that. Yeah. It's just... I, I used to think it was kind of a skill that he had developed or something like that. And then the more I was around him, the more I realized it's just who, it's he, just is. who he is. Yeah. It's, it's so yeah. a part of who he is. His whole family's that way. Yeah. He's not trying to do it. Yeah. He just does it because it's who he is. Yeah. It's a matter of doing as opposed to being. Yeah. So I want to go, go into a little deeper detail on something if you can if you can share it so what does it look like to produce a song so since you're working with steve currently Mm -hmm. um when you're producing so one of my favorite songs that you have produced is remember to remember oh by Stephen curtis um i love that song i love the sound of it i love all the instrumentation in it i love how it's mixed like just just sonically i think it's one of my favorite songs but can you go kind of talk through the process of producing a song? Like, what does that look like for you? How do you do that? Well, yeah. Um, on that particular one, I think I remember this correctly. On that particular song, for instance, I think Stephen had a voice memo maybe on his iPhone. And, and then... Um, more than likely came over here and played down, uh, put on headphones and we had a click going and decided this is the right tempo for it and put down just kind of a scratch guitar and vocal. And then I probably cooked up, I'm saying all this because this is kind of our usual workflow. Okay. Um, or, or one that we've used multiple times. And then I'll kind of make a sketch of, um, here's kind of what I think might work and then send him an MP3. So you're like building tracks around, I'm kind of building tracks around his scratch tracks mm-hmm. and building a, a sound mm-hmm. and then, uh, sending him an MP3 saying, what do you think of this and getting adjustments from him? Okay. So that's either, yeah, this is great. I love it. Keep running. Or I like this part about it but I feel like it could go maybe a little more in this direction or a little less in this direction. I'm, I'm trying to get guidance from him. And then once we kind of get the, the course set, then I'll run into, let's get a drum track. Let's get, mm-hmm. let's go away from this. I've probably programmed drums at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's figure out getting a drum track, playing bass. What are we going to do for guitars? Then we start figuring out the game plan for getting to the finish line. Mm-hmm. So I'll usually uh, do a lot of that stuff. And then um, at some point he'll come in, sing, you know, we'll maybe do background vocals. Um, Are you and, hiring uh, players coming in or does does he pick, or for, whether it be him or any other artist you're working with, who's usually picking who's going to play on what? Um, it's for a mix, maybe. I mean, with 
with Stephen and with most most artists, it's usually a collaboration yeah. where I'll say, "Well, I think this guy would be great." Okay. Um, and I mean, maybe I'll throw out a few names, and he'll say, "You know, well, I like that that name," and I think, "Okay, great. Well, mm -hmm. let's roll with that." Mm -hmm. So it's. I guess I don't think of it so much as me picking or or him picking as much as it's just a conversation that we have and sure. we decide together. Yeah. And we often decide together on mix. It's interesting that you mentioned that song because I think that song, I think Sean Moffat mixed that mm. one. But I, there have been times, I've never considered myself a mix engineer. And there have been times where I would mix something and I would say, I would send an MP3 of a, of a rough. And I would say, well, I'd call Steven, Hey, who do we want to mix this? And he would say, well, I like your rough. I think you should mix it. Yeah. And I remember having a conversation once and I said, this is, I don't, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't like that idea because mm. I know mix guys and I know they can kick my tail on this. And he would say, I think you're selling yourself short. I think this mix sounds better than you think it does. And I think you're only a few two weeks away from, he said, man, this, the DNA is right in this yeah. mix and you need to, you need to stick with it. Yeah. You need to learn to believe in that. Yeah. You know what? I had the same issue because as a producer and, and a mixer and engineer, like I, when I'm doing my music, I do pretty much everything for the most part. And so you know, and I write a lot of music for TV and film projects and things. So a lot of times I have a co-producer that'll work on certain aspects of it or, um, or I'm working with an artist and I'm doing the majority of it, whatever. But I get to a point, I feel like I'm 93% there. And there's that yeah. extra few percent that i just don't feel like I'm hitting something that needs to be there. You yeah. know, I don't know enough about whatever, you know, a certain plug-in or a certain compression or whatever it is, you know, um, there's just, I still have a lot to learn. You know, I know, I feel like I know a pretty good amount, but there's still always, there's always something else to learn for everyone. Sure, yeah. And so sometimes I bring in a, a co-producer at that point and just say, hey, finish this off and do this final mix and master or whatever. Cause I just, I feel like I'm not hitting something that needs to happen, you know? Right. Or you've lost perspective cause yeah, you're so close you, to exactly. it. Exactly. Um, but then sometimes I just have to lean into the fact like, okay, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, it may not, it may not be what I think it needs to be, but there's something there, you know, yeah. it's like in the people that are the other artists or musicians that are involved in it will be like, you know, this is it. This is good. We're, this is, we're fine with this. Yeah. Um, so there's that constant battle. So I understand that. Yeah. And I think, I think my belief in that has changed a lot. And I think a lot of that is probably attributed to being around Steven mm -hmm. because he's such a, an encourager and because he's, uh, just, you know, uh, a guy that I look up to so much and, and a dear man that when he was on the phone saying, no, man, you've got this, you can do this. He's done that in multiple areas of my life. Uh, I never played cello in front of people until, um, I would I would play in the studio because it's a controlled environment. You can auto-tune it. You can fix it. You can play it 50 times till you get it right. And um, he said, well, you should bring your cello out on the road and play, on the, uh, play a couple songs in the show. And I was like, that's a really bad idea. I'm not that good. 
And he basically challenged me mm-hmm. and said, no, you just, you need to do it. Just get, and in a, in a funny way, probably he was probably laughing when he did it, but, um, it was probably, Oh, come on, man. Just grab your cello and let's go get out on stage. Just yeah. bite the bullet. And coming from him, you just, he, he's such a encouraging guy. You feel like maybe I can, maybe yeah. I can do this. And so, um, you know, he's definitely way, way in the pantheon as well, uh, of, just men that have influenced me so much uh, with his friendship, with his encouragement, with his music, with his example, you know, watching his family life and just him being such a big part of my life. uh, It's just a gift that I don't even, I can't even measure the impact of. But yeah, but as far as process, it's pretty collaborative and sometimes if he's in a season where he's busy doing other things, maybe playing shows or uh, doing any of the number of, maybe he's involved, uh, super involved with show hope mm-hmm. in that season. Um, there's, you know, he's a busy guy. So if he's super busy, then I feel like I have to get the track to the finish line without as much input. And so we've gone through, uh, we've gone through those times. And then if he's got some time, then he's, you know, able to be here more, uh, more involved. And, and so we've done those as well. And, uh, so my job as a producer is kind of get it to the finish line with whatever level of involvement, um, he's able to provide at that moment. So I'm curious as far as the new album. Uh, deeper roots where the yeah. bluegrass grows because that's a completely genre-wise different take and and Stephen yeah. does you know he can do any genre marvelously yeah. so but you go from you know remember to remember pop um, you know or signs of life or this moment or whatever um, to deeper roots you know bluegrass hardcore bluegrass, you know, with Ricky Skaggs and, um, and these yeah. amazing bluegrass musicians and, um, having his dad and Herb and brother Herbie on and, um, which they're family to me, by the way, I don't know if you know that or not, but I'm from Paducah. His, Oh really? Her, yeah. His dad, Herb was my guitar teacher. So oh, wow. <laughs> it's like my second father. Oh, so gosh. there people, people probably wonder, it's like, why are you, I feel like on, on nearly every episode interview that I do, I, I reference, Stephen Curtis Chapman, and it's uh-huh. not like I'm not obsessed <laughs> for people. Yeah. Like, dude, this is this dude's got an issue or, or something, but they're family to me. Yeah, and um, so I've known them since I was four years old. Oh gosh, and, I and, love his dad. Yeah, so, and Herb. I'm just wonderful. So Herb and Herbie, and um, you know, they're like he's like my father, and they're like brothers to me. And so it, it was so cool that they get to be such a huge part of, of the Bluegrass album. Um, yeah. What's the difference producing a bluegrass album from a pop album? Oh, or well, is there a difference um, as far as like the production aspect for you? Um, well, I mean, the, all of the, the sounds are different. Yeah. Um, the bluegrass thing is, is from an engineering perspective, a lot more pristine, than um, than pop, 
I mean, it's not uncommon on a pop record to maybe um, get some of the sounds to be a little more impactful with things like distortion and things like that, that, you know, it doesn't sound distorted, but there is actually some Mm -hmm. harmonic distortion behind the sounds. Um, That's not the same on a bluegrass record. I mean, the bluegrass ethos is capture it as pristinely as possible. Yes. Naturals can be. Yeah. So that's pretty different. Bluegrass is also so interactive from the players interacting with each other. Yeah, because you're all in a room playing playing together. Sometimes. So, on some of it. Yeah, on some of it. And then some of that record is um, Stephen laying down a scratch and uh, sending that scratch out to multiple players mm-hmm. and they send back tracks. And then uh, we're kind of comping, choosing phrases, choosing where certain instruments solo and things like that and putting it together mm-hmm. um, okay. kind of piece by piece. Yeah. Just, um, just listening, just in the, in the listen back of it, of yeah. figuring out how you want to sort of paste it all together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where the bluegrass grows was all of us in this room. So that was really fun. That was kind of an all play. That's awesome. Yeah. I saw Matt Menifee. Yeah. Playing banjo on it. Gosh, what a player. He's a killer banjo player. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, those players, uh, Matt, I think um, probably Ron Block might have played some banjo on that record. Um, Andy Leftwich on mandolin and Mm -hmm. fiddle. What a, what a force. Yeah. Gosh. I think people are like, how do you know the names of all these players and different people and it's like you're talking about earlier liner notes yeah you know it's like when you got albums and cds and cassette tapes and whatever and you open up the the booklet you know you're looking at who the players are because as a player and you know listeners that you need to go pick up a cd or something you know forget itunes and mp3s for a minute and go pick up a physical cd or something and and open it up and look at liner notes and and lyrics and who wrote who writes the songs who plays on the songs mm-hmm. because those for like when we were in high school and middle school and younger listening to albums and wanting to get into music, like who's playing this and oh that like is super cool. Who, I wonder who did that. And then you find that out and then you become a fan of that person as a player, Yeah, you know, and I want to play, be able to play like this particular person or I yeah. want to produce like this particular person because that's in a liner note. Um, and then you start, learning and knowing who these people are, yeah, you know, and aspiring to be able to do something that's similar to what they do, sure, you know, and so, so Matt Menifee, he and I actually, the, when the TV show Nashville was on for a few years, um, he and I both played in the, in the bands oh. on that show. So we were in a oh, band yeah. together. That's, that's how we met. And then I found out that he got to play on this. And so I was like, dude, that's so awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah, it was great. Uh, really fun to meet him. Great guy. Those guys for me on bass were uh, Tommy Sims, Jimmy Lee Slos. I mean, they were probably the main ones for me when I was in college and playing along with records and always looking for those guys' names. And uh, would occasionally uh, run across Pino Palladino. Oh, yeah. In those John Mayer. Early days, yeah. Uh, he was doing some session work. Lee Sklar. 
huge session player, mm -hmm. very influential. He played uh, on Signs of Life. He did. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and then for me, another huge influence was Sting, uh, Paul McCartney, Stevie Wonder was a big deal. Um, I had a cassette of Stevie Wonder in junior high, and that's all I listened to. Mm -hmm. So uh, the bass on the Stevie Wonder records is just phenomenal. And I would like kind of be learning to play along with those. And uh, once I had gotten into high school and gotten a bass, I kind of wanted to learn how to play all that Stevie Wonder stuff. Uh, the police records, the first four police records, learning all those Sting bass lines. Mm -hmm. Sting was a big influence. And then Paul McCartney, when I started listening to the Beatles in high school, big influence on bass. Yeah. I want to, I want to back up just for a minute. Cause you mentioned about being an, an A and R guy at a label for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think I knew that before today. So can you talk about being an A and R guy and what you had to do in that position? Well, uh, and how did you get that position? I know you said you're coming off the road, but like I got that position because Forefront Records, their head of A and R had left, and they talked to Charlie Peacock about being their interim head of A and R, and I think he signed on for like a year. And part of his job, I think, was to find his replacement. Mm. So one day he calls me and he says, hey, I'm doing this head of A&R thing for a year and I'm supposed to find my replacement. Would you be interested in talking about doing that? And I thought to myself, I'm not really that interested, but this probably means getting together with Charlie, which, yeah, sign me up for that. I don't get enough Charlie in my life <laughs> and why not? You know, it's, you know, he was thoughtful enough to consider me. I probably ought to hear him out okay, and just hear what this is about. So we went and took a walk in Warner park over here and, and he told me about this job and what it was like, what was involved, told me the whole story. And so I thought, well, I'm open to hearing more. So I went and met with Greg Ham, who was the president of the label at that point, and uh, just a fantastic guy. And so I met with them, and I kind of got more and more curious about it. It kind of seemed more and more like a good fit um, and like something that I would enjoy. So I went to work at Forefront as head of A&R, and working for Greg Ham, And um, it's funny because Forefront was the label that Eddie DeGarmo had been so involved in, in, in the days where he hired me to do my first record and, right. and was hiring me after that to do more records. That was Forefront. Okay. And so they had sold that label, and Greg had been around in those early days and had now risen to be president of the label. And then here I come, and I'm... Um, involved in that label as well. So it was funny, just things circle back around like that yeah. a lot if you hang around for long enough. Yep. And um, yeah, so that that was really cool and got to work with uh, some great people. Uh, Toby Mack, Audio Adrenaline, Rebecca St. James. Um, I know I'm probably going to miss somebody. That's okay. 
but um, yeah, those are those are fun days. So, what do you do as an A and R? Basically, uh, you know, it's kind of project management from the label side. Uh, you're helping the artists think through direction musically. You're helping them think through songs, song selection. Um, you're helping them think through producer choices. Um, who's the best producer to help this get to the finish line in a way that's most uh, commercial. Um, you're thinking about radio songs, kind of helping make sure they have some songs that work at radio. You're uh, maybe bringing songs to the radio department saying, is this, is this radio enough? So you're helping them you're helping them walk through the, the multifaceted process of making a record and turning in a record to a label that's going to help their career the most. Okay. That's going to have radio success, hopefully. That's going to be in line with what the artist wants, hopefully, what the label wants, hopefully. Um, you're kind of the go-between. But you work for the label, so you know, that, that consideration comes in pretty heavily. Yeah. So just kind of wrapping up here, what would be some advice that you would give for someone that's wanting to either be a musician yeah, or producer or, or A&R? Um, yeah. You know, you've been doing multiple things throughout your career that have allowed you to do this full time. And, um, you know, and somebody, we all have to start somewhere and we know it's relationship based. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it. But and there's talent has to be involved. Obviously, you have to have a, a decent amount of talent to go along yeah. with it. But yeah, it's a good question. I think I would go back to the idea that Charlie introduced to me, which was develop one competency, okay. start there, uh, become good at songwriting or playing or engineering or something. So establish that, and then try to try to move on from there. Um, if you want to be a producer, I would say start producing things, have a laptop, learn to, you know, I, I always tell people learn to play your laptop like an instrument with all the virtual instruments and things on there. You can walk into a Starbucks with a laptop and walk out two or three hours later with a, you know, a great track. Mm -hmm. Um, so instead of waiting on somebody to produce, start producing stuff, start producing tracks. You know, I've, I know a guy who was doing that, who was producing tracks and a huge artist heard one of his tracks and went, I love this and wrote a song to it. And all of a sudden he had a hit song. Wow. Uh, he was, he had produced a hit song just because he had made these cool tracks. I know there's multiple guys in the country world who do that. They just make awesome tracks and give them to songwriters and the songwriters write a song to it. And all of a sudden a huge artist just comes and sings a vocal to it and they've got a, a big hit. So I think, um, I think doing that, just start doing what you want to, what you aspire to do at whatever le level you're able to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, if I wanted to be a session guy and I had just moved to town yesterday, and I wanted to play bass on sessions, I would probably start putting up videos of myself, playing along with 
uh, really great bass grooves. And I would probably just put those all over social media and YouTube and stuff and trying to make a presence for myself as, oh, this guy's a bass player. I've seen him play. I can watch him play mm -hmm. online. He's killing it. He must be really good. Um, I'm putting this band together. I think I'll just contact him and see if he wants to go have lunch or something, figure out if he's a good guy or not. And if he is, well, I've already seen him play a bunch. I know he can play. Right. So at that point, I'll either ask him to come play or I'll maybe um, audition him or something. Or if I'm making a record and he keeps playing along with these songs that I think are really cool, then and he sounds great doing it, then maybe he'd be a natural for me to call in and do these sessions. Yeah. Um, it's so easy to get your name and your image and your playing out there now um, because we have so many avenues to do it. Whereas when I started, it was very word of mouth, but it was, I guess you'd had a demo tape maybe. I mean, I made one demo tape. That's what got me the Margaret Becker audition. Okay. But I never really made any, uh, any bass demo tapes or anything after that. It was all kind of word of mouth. Gotcha. Um, so now I think it's probably a mixture. It is still very word of mouth. But it is also, if you wanted to, to get your name out there, you could make videos every day and get your name out there as a bass mm -hmm. player or a guitar player or yeah. drummer. I see a lot of drummers doing that. What about as a, someone wanting to get into the label side of it, whether it be A&R or, or just really any aspect of working for a label, is there any, um, somebody walking into town, you know, they just yeah. moved to town and wanting to be on the label side of things is there, you know, and again, we talk about being relationship based, but maybe they don't know anybody. You know, if you're brand new to town, like how do you approach a label and <laughs> that's a, that's I, a different thing. <laughs> yeah. That's an entirely different thing and not something that I really think I know the answer to okay. other than maybe, you know, those labels I think have, websites that probably have job openings yeah a lot on of the website a lot do sort of like the indeed and glassdoor and those websites yeah, will yeah. have different labels and publishers looking for whatever position that they need so i know that there's that aspect of it as well yeah, yeah and then if you looked at a label and went to their website and maybe they have a a page of staff that work there or something like that, or you stalk them on social media and figure out who at that label does what you want to do mm -hmm. and then try to contact them through mm -hmm. social media or something and say, Hey, I just moved here. Um, you have my dream job. I'm wondering if maybe I could buy you lunch someday and just hear about how did you get this dream job or something? Yep. And if I think, people are usually pretty generous and giving in terms of that. So if you contact them and say, um, you're doing what I want to do, can I buy you lunch or something like that? They'll usually find a way to do that. Yeah. And so you get an hour with them. And uh, a lot of times if, you know, if they like you, if you're a moderately likable person, um, then they'll, you know, they might give you a hand. They might say, oh, well, I know an opening at another label or you need to meet this person. Mm -hmm. Let me make that connection. Yeah. Um, 
And it comes back to being to building a relationship. It comes with back someone. to building relationships. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Getting to know them back. for who they are. Right. You know. So. Yeah. Yeah. And being just interested in people. Right. That's awesome. Well, man, thank you so much yeah. for your time and sure. sharing your amazing wealth of knowledge and expertise and all things music related that you've been a part of. And I'm very grateful for you coming um, coming on here. Let me come hang out in your studio and and just learn from you and learn some more things. And uh, it's been awesome. So I love the connection that we have with different people, yeah, mutual friends that we've had over the yeah. years. And, and your connection to the Chapmans, which yeah. is just huge, huge connection for me, a huge part of my life. And I can't even express the love that I have for, yep. for the Chapmans. Yep. Yeah, me too. So, well, thank you again. It's been an honor to hang out with you and, and, hope that everything that you continue to work on throughout the rest of your career is as successful and wonderful as it has been so far. Thank you. Yep. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you guys again for listening to our show today with my guest, Brent Milligan. What a deep well of knowledge and information he has to share. So much good stuff. So I really hope that you're taking notes and able to get these things down so that you can apply these bits of information to your life and to your career. Be sure to let me know if Edabrook Productions can help you with consulting services via phone call, Skype, or FaceTime. Let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.